you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. Our text this morning is the end of chapter 16, through the first nine verses of chapter 17. As our text is a little bit shorter than it has been in the past, I'd like to set the stage for us by reading it. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, an authoritative word. This is the very word of God. Beginning at chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethabal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In the days of Heel of Bethel, excuse me, in his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite, of Tishba in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed instruct us from your word. Lord, we seek your wisdom. We seek your knowledge, Lord. But most of all, from your word, Lord, we seek your Christ. We pray that you would lay before our eyes the Lord Jesus Christ in all his magnificence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are one who partakes of watching dramas, you know the signs. If you're watching a play, the curtains close, and then they reopen, and the scenery has changed. If you're watching something on film or on television, often it's 
a change in scenery accompanied by a change in music. It's when you know that the next act is up. And that is what's before us here this morning. As we've been going through the book of 1 Kings together, we've seen in our first act the life of Solomon. We saw him in all his glory, and then we saw him as he fell short. And then the second act that was before us was a bit darker. It was this continual downward spiral of various wicked kings of Israel. There were brief interludes about the kingdom of Judah, but in the main, our author has set before our eyes the covenant-breaking state of Israel. Last week we looked at not one, not two, nor even three or four, but five really bad kings, seeming one worse than the previous one. Just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, they do. But it's when the clouds are darkest, and when we are tempted to despair because there's no hope in our own strength, that is when the Lord God breaks through. And this morning, we see him breaking through in spectacular fashion. So what I would like us to see this morning is first, the provoking of the Lord. As the kingdom of Israel provokes the Lord. And then, the solution to the provoking of the Lord is the prophet of the Lord. The prophet of the Lord comes forth by the name of Elijah. So the Lord is provoked... He sends his prophet, and then we see the provision of the Lord, how God provides. And I think it will be interesting as we look at it, it's not exactly what we might expect to see from the text in terms of what that provision is. Provoking the Lord, the prophet of the Lord, and the provision of the Lord. Well, The provoking of the Lord begins now here at the end of chapter 16, and it really reaches its greatest height that it can. There is a new king in town, a new king in a new town. You remember we looked last week that the town of Samaria was built from scratch on a high hill by Omri, king of Israel. He wasn't a very good king. It was said of him that he sinned more than all those who had preceded him. And we wonder, can it get any worse than that? Yes, for he has a son that he raises, a man by the name of Ahab. And we're going to see how Ahab provokes the Lord with his sin. We'll see Ahab and his sin. And then, closely related to Ahab, you almost can't say that without finishing Jezebel. We see Jezebel and her Baal. And then there's this odd, small character that comes in, Heel. What is he doing here? Well, we're going to see his pride. And all of these things are indicative what happens to a state when they abandon the Lord God. Ahab comes on the scene, and he is the new king. Asa is still reigning. You remember Asa? We looked at him several weeks ago. He reigned such a long time that now we're into, I think... King number six, who's reigning opposite him. As the kings of Israel simply roll over and over and over again. But things are different in Israel than they were just a few decades ago. 
where previously there was warfare, assassination, plotting, drunkenness, instability, a king that reigns months, another king that reigns but a short year or two. Now we have times that are pretty good. It's stable. There's peace. There's prosperity. Ahab succeeds his father Omri, who reigns for a significant period of time, more than a few decades. And our author gives us a bit of a a glimpse of what's to come, that Ahab is is going to reign for many years, 22 years. As a matter of fact, we're going to get to know Ahab pretty well. He reigns about the amount of time as his father, but whereas his father's press coverage is measured in verses, Ahab's is measured in chapters. For the rest of 1 Kings, Ahab is going to be in front of us. There's stability in Israel for the next 22 years. The economy is good. After all, you don't just build a city from scratch if there's no money to be paid to workers. Remember that. Samaria was just built from scratch by his father. So there's stability and the economy is good. But there's also foreign policy success. You see, we're going to look in a minute at Jezebel, but when I say Jezebel to you, you think of all of the things that we're going to see in chapters to come, don't you? But what you need to see here, what your author wants you to see here, is that she is a princess of Tyre, a very wealthy, seafaring trade nation. Tyre is a part of Phoenicia. Some of you may have studied ancient cultures and heard about the Phoenicians. Tyre is a powerful but small nation. It's reached because of its ability to uh, storm the seas, reaches very far across the known world. As a matter of fact, in the days of the niece of Jezebel, Carthage will be founded. Dido is a not-so-distant relative of Jezebel. So this is a powerful country, a powerful city-state, and Israel wants to have an alliance with it. Well, why is that? It's because they're both afraid of Syria, and they both want to be even wealthier. Tyre wants access to trading inland over Israel. Israel wants access to trading across the seas. And so things are good. There's a chicken in every pot. Men get early leave from the army. We might imagine the headlines at the Sumerian Times or the Sumerian Post saying, what a king Ahab is. Peace and prosperity. But that's not really what our author wants us to see, is it? Because he introduces us to Ahab very quickly. Verse 30 says, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. You see, Ahab is his father's son. You may find it odd that as we look through this, that he is called Ahab, the son of Omri, three times in very quick succession. Our author wants us to know, like father, like son. But you see, Omri had been singled out for the extent of his sin just a little bit before. It had been said of him that he sinned worse than anyone before him. And now our author, as it were, doubles down on Ahab. He says, double or nothing. Omri's sin, 
Ahab's sin. You thought Omri was bad. Well, he was. He was worse than anybody else. But Ahab's worse than anybody else and his dad. You see, the previous standard for sin, as you recall, over and over again was that he followed in the sin of the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It's sort of like the gold standard for wickedness. Well, we might not say the gold standard. Let's call it the garbage standard for wickedness. But you see, they got to take it to a whole nother level. When you sold out all the gold records and you need to go high, you go platinum. And so when you sin beyond anything Jeroboam could even think about, you become the new standard of sin. Because you see, for Ahab, Jeroboam's sin is a light thing, our author says. It's trivial. In our vernacular, we might say, small potatoes. It's nothing. Ahab takes sin to the next level. What a legacy for a king over God's people. Because you see, what happens is, in Jeroboam's day, there's just merely this mixing up of the worship of God and various pagan deities. There's sloppiness. There's selfishness. But you see, Ahab says, no, let's go and actually worship the false deities. And let's try and get rid of all of the worship of God. This is not just difficulties in the land. This is outright rebellion. One commentator puts it this way, and I think it's very vivid. It's as if drinking from the bucket of Omri is having polluted water. But the bucket of Ahab is raw sewage. Neither is good for you. One is certainly much worse for you. This is the new king that is in place in Israel. But he's not alone. You know, it's said that behind every good man stands a very good woman. So I suppose behind every wicked man here in the Scriptures is an incredibly wicked woman. Perhaps the most wicked woman mentioned in all of Scripture, Jezebel. Her very name is a curse in our culture, is it not? You call someone a Jezebel when you mean to insult them as deeply as you can. Jezebel comes and marries Ahab, and that marriage is one of political success. Wealth flows into Israel and into Tyre because of this marriage treaty. As a matter of fact, for generations to come, Israel will ride high. Unemployment will be low. Stock returns will be high because of this marriage. And it was done because Tyre and Israel both feared Syria. Ben-Hadad, actually there's a series of Ben-Hadads, Ben-Hadad I, Ben-Hadad II, and so on. Kings of Syria have their own growth plan. It's called build up the cavalry, swoop into somebody else's kingdom, take some stuff, and go back. And then when you run off, repeat. It's like lather, rinse, repeat. You just keep doing this over and over again. And very quickly, the states that are around him realize, united we stand, divided we fall. We better get together. So, God's people unites with a pagan nation. But I want you to remember something, because again, we're reading this, looking at this text in context. God's people forge a treaty with a Canaanite pagan tribe. Why do they do so? 
Well, they do so because they're afraid of Syria. Well, why are they afraid of Syria? Well, isn't it because the good king of Judah compromised and didn't trust the Lord, and he bribed the king of Syria to make those attacks? This is what we might call the law of unintended consequences. That the king over God's people loses sight of God for a moment, acts in his own strength, and he doesn't even know where the end of that will be. The end of that is a marriage to a wicked queen who will begin, in chapters to come, murdering the prophets of God. At least as a secondary result of his lack of faith, that is, aces, in God. Well, we're going to see later how bad Jezebel is. I don't want to ruin the suspense for you. We're going to see all of the things that she does. And there's so many bad things that it takes up five or six chapters worth that we'll see. She's a murderess. She's a liar. She's a cheat. She's a pagan. She's a hater of God. But one of the things that we need to know right off the bat in our story is that she is a very devoted follower of Baal. Now, who is Baal? This is an important historic point. Baal is the name of the Canaanite deity who was called the Storm God. Now, you can imagine why. Storms are powerful. It's said that before the advent of the atomic bomb, there was no single more frightening powerful thing to experience than a storm. Perhaps some of you experienced it in very small degree with Hurricane Katrina or Rita. Storms are powerful. So if you want a powerful God, you make him the God of the storm. There's another thing that's involved, though, too. All of the peoples of this region are farmers. And if you're a farmer, what do you need more than anything else in the world? Rain. So if you need rain and rain doesn't come, you had better figure out a way to get rain. And so, what do you do? You have the God of rain. And conveniently, the God of rain is a God that you can bribe or trick or use magic on so that he can bring rain and you can be prosperous. That's who Baal is. We all know, we can look out outside, especially in Houston, we have days that vary between raining cats and dogs and long dry spells, don't we? So how do you explain that? Well, you see, Baal was the storm god who during the dry season submitted to the god of death. He was under the power of death for three, six months, and then his consort would come and defeat death and he would be born again and it would rain. A very convenient myth that explains why Baal is not all-powerful all the time. I want you to remember this. Baal is a god who is designed to live and then to be dead and then to have to be rescued. How different from the god of Israel. Well, we'll see exactly how different Elijah tells us in just a few moments. Well, as I said, Jezebel worships this deity, and she doesn't do anything halfway. She's not content, like Mrs. Solomon, to simply have a little chapel in the corner to Ashtoreth, where she can have her little shrine and sit and mutter her prayers. No! 
Jezebel comes with the Baal entourage. The Baal entourage is 450 priests and a further 400 priests of his wife, Ashtoreth. Now imagine this. Imagine just if 850 people showed up at the White House to live. Or even here. Now imagine that they're all leaders and priests. We'd have to presume they'd have assistance. Think of how often sacrifices would have to occur to keep 850 priests busy. You see, this is a major thing. Ahab is turning Samaria into Baal Central. And our author wants us to see this, to see the change that is happening. This is not a small thing. Look at the language here. It's very interesting. Beginning in verse 31, that Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, that name means Baal is living, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. We might say our author is telling us to follow the bouncing Baal. This is who is front and center. Merely a century ago, this is the land of David. A few centuries ago, the Israelites are wiping out these Canaanite false gods. And now they've come and they're sitting in the living room with their finest on. What a change. Do you think God is provoked by that? Do you think God cares about that? Well, we then see a third man. He's a bit player compared to Ahab and Jezebel. But he gets at least a little bit of press here from our author. In verse 34, in his days, that is in the days of Ahab, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord. This man, Heel, comes from Bethel. Bethel, which used to be a place marked for piety and worship of the Lord. But you know Bethel is already on its way downhill, don't you? You remember our odd story of the two prophets? And how the one prophet said that a future king of Israel, Josiah, would burn the bones of the prophets of Baal right here at Bethel? Well, now it's already started to come true because a man from Bethel comes and does something you are not supposed to do. He rebuilds Jericho. This is something that... <clears throat> that had been prophesied hundreds of years before by Joshua, the son of Nun, when he said, if anyone attempts to rebuild this city, he'll do it with the lives of his sons. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. The word built here does not mean that some people finally decided to live in Jericho. Get out of your minds the picture of a kind of tumbleweed old west town with rickety boards and a couple of people living in a tent there. People were living in that area before this. This is the rebuilding of Jericho as a fortress. And you can obviously see why God and his servants don't want Jericho to be rebuilt a fortress. But that doesn't matter to Ahab. He's probably having some difficulties with 
the country of Moab, which is near Jericho. As a matter of fact, after Ahab dies, Moab will rebel. So what does Ahab do? Well, he does what any pagan hater of God would do. He looks to himself and his own strength. And he says, I'm going to set up this town. Who should I award that big, fat defense contract to? Hiel. Are you willing to do it? Yes, sir. Well, what about that prophecy? Who cares about a prophecy, sir? You're the king. Who's God? And you can almost imagine. The building goes on. They're almost as excited about it as we are about our building. They pull up the beams. They put things together. And he now gets, well, he doesn't get a cell phone call. He maybe gets a message from a messenger. And it says, your oldest son is taken ill. He's died. My oldest son has died? Well, never mind. I'll push on. I'll get this done. Then my youngest son can see what glory I've done. Someone may say, well, what about that prophecy? Oh, prophecy, schmophecy. Bring the things up here. Set those rocks. Put that mortar. And they lay it out. And he looks at its magnificence. And they lay out the gate that will protect this city from all comers. No one can conquer this city. And they lay the foundations for the gate. And another messenger comes. Now, he's probably afraid. My Lord, your youngest son took sick. He's dead. And you can almost imagine everyone taking pause. Not because of the death, but because they have seen God's power through his word. Hundreds of years later, God's word remains true. What kind of pride is it that pushes on in the face of God's word? It's the pride that is front and center in the kingdom of Ahab. Does God's word matter to you? Do you push on even though there's something that nags at you? Do you drive in your marriage even though it doesn't quite square with how God says your marriage should be? Do you conduct yourself at work to get ahead, even though it doesn't quite square with what God says you're to do at work? Do you treat your neighbor how you feel like it, based on how hungry or tired you are, even though it doesn't quite square with what the Lord has called us to? You see, one of the things the story of Heel teaches us is that the Word of God matters in all circumstances. King or builder, empire or construct. The construction worker needs the Word of God as much as the king. Well, the question then is, can this get any worse? You've got a king who's known for his wickedness. Only person worse in the kingdom is his wife. You've got them undertaking classic examples of rebellion, building cities that everybody knows shouldn't be rebuilt. I mean, let's face it, this is Jericho, right? It's not Jerichburg, somewhere small up in the north. This is a story passed on from children to children, generation to generation. And the answer is, yes, it can get worse. Because God is about to enter in and to push these provocations to their final point. And so we begin here then in verse 17 to see the, or excuse me, chapter 17, verse 1, to see the prophet of the Lord. 
Now, what I need you to do here is something for me. I need you to take in your Bible, and if yours is like mine, you have the end of a paragraph and a big 17, and you've got some amount of white space. I want you to put your finger over the white space. Because, you see, this is one of the occasions where the chapter break hides something from us. We think, well, this is what's going on, and then maybe sometime later. No. This is meant to be shocking to us. The description is of all this horribleness going around. And into this scene of sin and wickedness and pride and paganism and misery bursts Elijah the prophet. That name should thrill you, shouldn't it? He's the prophet. He doesn't have his own book like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but Elijah the prophet. What goes through your mind? No rain for three years. Fire from heaven. Mount of transfiguration with Moses and our Lord. This is Elijah, one of the most powerful servants of the Lord God. And do you see what's happening here? What God has said is, no matter how bad the situation is, no matter how miserable it gets, no matter how far gone it is, my power is greater. And my power is greater in one man. You need 850 priests? I'll send one prophet. You think you have a God that controls the rain? Guess what? Heavens are shut up for three years. Go pray to your God. See if he can bring you rain. You, Jezebel, daughter of Baal, is alive? Listen to Elijah who says, As the Lord lives, there shall be no rain. You see, Elijah breaks into the scene, and it is incredibly sudden. How sudden it is as he breaks onto the scene. There's no introduction. There's no formula. Do you notice that? There's no... Now, it happened in the days of Ahab, the son of Omri, the successor to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that there was a man who dwelt in the town of Tishba, and the man's father was such and such. And he walked so and so. And he came to the king and he said thus and such. Isn't that often how we see these incidents? No, not here. Now Elijah comes in and says, As the Lord God, excuse me, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain all these years, (coughs) except by my word. As a matter of fact, as I thought through, I could really only think of one other introduction that's this sharp and distinctive. Do you know who that is? It's John the Baptist in Mark. You remember John the Baptist? He just bursts onto the scene and he's an odd-looking man with a garment of hair and a belt of leather. Same thing we're going to see Elijah described as wearing later. You see, this is another new epic in the work of God. Just as we see John the Baptist and we recognize God is really up to something here. Here, with Elijah, God is really up to something here. He is broken on the scene. And there's a marked shift from what has happened previously. Now think about it. We just had one sentence before the description of a man who completely ignored the word of God and built a city that cost him two sons. What's God's response? 
to bring His Word and power. We had just talked about a king who denied God and wanted to worship Baal. And who comes on the scene? Elijah. Do you know what Elijah means? My God is Yahweh. The Lord is my God. So we have the king who is Baal is my God, and immediately God sends his prophet. The Lord is my God. It's a completely different situation. You can imagine (coughs) this would be even more shocking than the scene at the dedication of the two golden calves when Jeroboam had the man of God come in and prophesy against him. You should also be getting the picture that this is how God operates. That when God is standing for his word and for his law and for his truth and seeking to call his people to repentance, he doesn't necessarily feel the need to ask Miss Manners what should go on. Elijah doesn't come up and say, um, King, have you, have you thought about maybe erecting a temple? Maybe it's a little bit bigger than the one to Baal? To, no. He comes in and he says, as the Lord lives, king, there'll be neither dew nor rain. I'm going to attack Baal right where he lives. And let's see what your God is like. And we see how powerful God is in the actions of Elijah. It's not just sudden, it's powerful. Elijah comes in and says, there'll be no dew nor rain. Now, have you wondered about that? Maybe you think all of the answer is, that Baal was a storm god. That's part of the answer. The other part of the answer is, this is a very specific covenant curse that Moses told Israel would come on them if they didn't follow the Lord. It's sort of like a game plan. Don't follow God, disobey God, get a drought. The fact that there's a drought lets you know, hello guys, start following God. Elijah says, I'm prosecuting the covenant lawsuit of the Lord God. I'm getting your attention, Ahab. There will be neither dew nor rain. And James tells us that by the mere power of prayer, Elijah prays, and the heavens are shut up for three years and six months. This is no extended dry season. This is no too hot summer, too cold winter. This is no pseudo-global warming. This is you can't go out and get a cup of water because it hasn't rained in two and a half years. This is children who can talk who don't even know what rain looks like because they're three years old. It's kind of like when we talk about being living in Jackson... And coming from Buffalo, my daughter doesn't really know what snow looks like. We're both from Buffalo. She's never really seen it. You'd have children here who would never have seen rain, never have seen a swollen river. This would affect all of society. This is very obvious. This is powerful. But there's something else. It's not just sudden. It's not just powerful. I want you to see how encouraging this is as well. Because Elijah comes on the scene just when he's needed most. And he comes with just what is needed most, the word of God. You see, just when we think things couldn't get any worse and they got worse, 
God enters in. Do you go home at night after you sing a wonderful hymn, after you have quiet time in the Word, and then you turn on CNN or ABC or Fox, and what you see on the screen causes you to just kind of slump in your seat a bit, to lose the spring in your step, to forget that third stanza of the hymn, and to think there's no hope for us. I imagine that's what some of these prophets of the Lord God would have felt like. And you see, God bursts onto the scene through His servant. And His servant does incredible things. And then He sends him off. Verses 2 and 3. He sends him off to this brook at Cherith. Now, if we look at this too quickly, we'll say, well, Elijah's running for his life. God's still not in control. He's afraid Ahab's going to kill him. We're going to see that a little bit later, too. Elijah is not a fearful man. What's going on here is not that God is afraid he can't protect Elijah unless he takes him off somewhere. No. This is God's power at work. God says, you don't want my word? I'm going to show you my word, and then I'm going to take it away. And I'm going to hide my word out where you don't know where it will be, out by a brook, a chair. And then when I want to move Elijah again, I'll move him again. Because my word is powerful. And you don't deserve it now, Israel, Ahab. This is perhaps a pre-fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos. Where there would be a famine not just of food and of water, but of the word of the Lord. This is God's power in action. God is taking his word away from Israel. To show them that he is the Lord God. And that he is alive. So he sends Elijah off to this brook. And then there's this cute Sunday school scene, right? Some of you have probably cut out the black ravens. And, you know, you flap them and that's... And maybe you put worms in the, in the raven's mouth. You sit there, you wonder, how did Elijah eat the worms from the ravens? Or what kind of flesh is that? Or was it rye bread or moldy bread? And we sort of cutify this. But you see, what's happening here is, really, it's part of the provision of the Lord. That the first thing the Lord provides is food. He's providing food. But think about this now. He's not just providing bread. What else is he providing? Meat. And how many times a day? Twice. That's more often than the Israelites during the Exodus got meat. They got meat once a day, the quail. They gathered the manna once a day. You see, God is showing how powerful he is. He can feed Elijah through men. He'll do that later. Through angels. He'll do that later. Through birds. But he provides for his servant. Now, there's a warning here that I need to give you. We're We are want to look at a text like this and to principle, to make it a principle for us. Well, you know, I don't like my job. I'm sure God will give me a job that I will love seven days a week. Because look, he provided for Elijah. Well, I know I've overspent and I'm in debt. And I really don't want to change my life. But he'll provide for me because look, he provided for Elijah. I read this and I have to look at it and I say, what makes me like Elijah? 
Am I a prophet? Am I bringing God's word in judgment? Why should Elijah be like every believer? I think it's actually a more comforting thing to see that God provides food to Elijah because Elijah is his servant and he's not done with him. Have you noticed that? That God can do whatever he needs to do to bring about his purposes. Abraham thought he could bring Isaac back from the dead. He did bring our Lord Jesus back from the dead. He brought Elijah up into heaven. He put Moses in the cleft of a rock. He could do whatever he needs to accomplish his purposes through his servants. So what does that mean? That means that this comfort here is not just about you won't go hungry or you'll have good raven food because God looks after all his children. No, what it means is that God has a purpose for your life and no matter what goes on, whether there's bullets flying around your head in Iraq or whether there's a mortgage bill you can't pay, God will sustain you to bring about his purpose. And that's true not just prophets in ancient days. George Whitfield put it this way, that he was immortal until God had accomplished what he needed to through him. Is that your attitude today? Do you live life with a bold, holy recklessness, knowing that God will do what he will do through you? I don't mean a recklessness that goes without abandon. I mean a recklessness driven by prayer and reading of the word and evangelism and seeking to see God's kingdom built up. That's what God provides for. And he doesn't just provide it to kings and prophets. He provides it to kids and moms and dads and elders and deacons and pastors. This is what he does through Elijah. But he doesn't just provide food. He also provides perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, if you have your morning devotions in the book of Leviticus, I know there's probably at least 30% of you that do, you will note that a raven is an unclean animal. Huh. Why would God use an unclean animal to feed his servant? I mean, he controls everything. This is so unusual that a lot of commentators say, oh, well, this is a misspelt word. This actually means a different word that describes black Arabs that used to live in the area. And they must have come and brought him food. Because they don't want to understand that God is not bound by categories. God can use even the unclean things to bring about his will. Don't believe it? Look down in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is, Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, I need to break it to you that this is before the days of Social Security. And in Israel, widows didn't take night classes and learn how to do word processing and become good single mothers. Basically, widows tried to scrape out a living and not die. We're talking about an agrarian society without the support level that we have for widows and widowers today. And... Zarephath is not an Israelite city. It's not a godly city. It's smack dab in the middle of Jezebel Central. 
It's right between the capital where her father lives and the most famous city. It's in enemy territory. It's pagan land. And God says, go over and that widow will, she'll take care of you. I've commanded her. Talk about blood from a stone. Go drink some sand. It's a complete opposite. We can almost imagine Elijah shaking his head and saying, okay, Lord, but I don't know what you're getting at. Because when someone says, widow, I don't think extra. I think poverty. And, and that's true because when she comes on the scene, we're going to see that she doesn't have anything. She's basically making her last supper. But you see, God says, I can use the weak things of the world. Don't worry about me, Elijah. I don't need an army. I'll show you that later. Don't worry about me, Elijah. I don't need a team of prophets. I'll show you that one later, too. Don't worry about me, Elijah. I can feed you through unclean animals and a widow. This is the way God provides. Are you looking for God to provide for you in that way? Or do you think he only provides through good stock advice? Through a second job? Through the best college you can go to? Are you looking for God in the trials of your life? In the shortcomings of your life? In those around you that you might not think are that important? That's what this lesson is. God provides food. God provides perspective. And then very quickly and finally, he provides judgment. You see, God sends Elijah to Zarephath. I've already told you where that is. It's in the middle of Phoenicia. It's where Jezebel's from. It's Baal country. You know, picture all of those things from the old cheesy movies. Nazi soldiers walking up and saying, Where are your papers? You must have your papers. Elijah's trying to duck in, cover his head so he's not seen. Because he's it. <laughs> the, the father of the queen of Israel's court. Why does God send him there? It's actually a fair distance from east of Jordan. Why did he send him all the way over there? Well, I think we can tell a glimmer from the text, but what we, where we really tell is not from here. It's from the New Testament. You remember that story when Jesus is in Nazareth and he's describing to the Pharisees that there were widows all over the place in Elijah's day and the Lord sent Elijah to Zarephath. Do you remember their reaction? They wanted to kill him. And you think, wait a minute, Jesus isn't that bad of a tour guide. He just said Zarephath. Why are you willing to kill him? It's because Jesus was reminding them that this was a judgment on Israel for its faithlessness. God doesn't need Israel. He doesn't need Pharisees. He doesn't need the church. He wants obedience. He wants your heart. And he'll send and save and provide for a pagan widow before some courtier at the court of Ahab. You see, this is judgment even in the travels of Elijah. What a powerful image. This is what happens when you provoke God. God sends his prophets. Even today in America, we provoke God. And God sends his prophets. He sends his prophets through me and through you. 
as we bring the word of God, as we call the church, as we call our neighborhoods back to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he provides for his people. This is the God we serve. If this is the God who can do these things in these circumstances, why should we ever be afraid? This is the same God we serve with the same power. Well, this is just the beginning of the story, too. There's many, many more wonders we're going to see. It's the first chapter. So I would invite you, as you go home this week, to trust in the Lord Jesus, to trust in the power of God, and to see what the next chapter of your life will be. And the power of the God of Israel, the God of Elijah, and the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed provide for us. We thank you for your word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us the courage we need to bring your word to a world that needs it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. stand together. Now hear the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.